0: What's up everybody? Thanks for tuning in, checking out the Hustle the Most podcast. This is episode nine, and today we're gonna to talk about building a culture that works. So when you're in an international touring band, there's always some sort of silent race that's going on with other bands. It's not really a race because there's not really like a finish, line, or an ending, but it's more like a like a one-up competition between friends. So I think motivated people and motivated bands are kind of always looking to do The next bigger and better thing, something better than like what your buddies' bands are doing, and you have this camaraderie with other bands. It's like you always want to do the next thing, different than what they're doing, but bigger and better. So, you know, when you're when you're touring a lot, you want to get exposed to as many people as possible. You want new fans, which means you have to go and play for people that you would not normally go and play to. So this is this is like looking up, right? This is this is the next big thing. Like I remember back in the day seeing. The band Clutch on tour with Suppltera in like 1993, maybe, and Clutch was one of the openers of the tour, and they were playing for this total metal crowd. And Clutch's crowd generally is not the total metal crowd; uh, it's kind of a weird mixed. See how it works? It's like they would actually come through as a support band and get exposed to a bunch of fans that they would not normally get to play for. So they got to play for Sepultura's fans, and then they would eventually come through on their own headlining show and hopefully the fans that came and saw them on the sopultura tour would be excited enough to come back and see them play on their own tour Um, this is kind of how a lot of bands grow this is also how a lot of bands die though we talked a little in the last couple episodes about starting a band and how i got my feet wet kind of gained some playing experience today we're going to talk about what it's like when something kind of takes off like how does that affect you how does it affect your friendships how does it affect your relationships with people? Um, it's it's a little it's a little different. It's, it's a little bit tricky as well. I can tell you that from experience. It's very much like starting a company. My so my best friends in the entire world um, were in this band with me called Spit. We talked a little bit about it in the last episode. I was in like tenth grade, and the band was awesome because we were all friends. Like it was these these were my boys. These were like my ride or dies. We did everything together. Like we would go skateboarding together. We would go to theme parks. Like Cedar Point, um, Wave Pools, whatever. Like, we went record shopping to shows. We did everything together and it was awesome. You know, doing anything with your best friends, it's like working with your best friends. Sometimes it's just really fun. Sometimes it's, it's kind of catastrophic, but overall, it's, it's generally pretty fun, especially if there's not a lot of pressure. So, playing in a band with people you know well is pretty awesome, especially if you are all on the same page musically. I can't stress this enough. Every band has this weird running encyclopedia of terms and feels that ha- will never end. It's like, a, it's like fashion. just keeps going forever, forever, forever. And it's, as long as music continues to be written, like this encyclopedia will continue to be created uh, throughout bands. There's this ever-running encyclopedia of terms and feels that will never, ever die as long as new music continues to be written. It's about referencing music when writing music. It's, it's actually really cool. So let me tell you kind of how it works. All great artists steal, but what people don't really know is that when people are writing songs or in the studio, a lot of other bands' names get thrown around kind of while you're writing songs. When a band is writing a song, it's not uncommon for someone to say like, give me one of those like Bonham kind of beats or, or let's do that like Prince type vocal break right there like you're always referencing some sort of other artists that's maybe not even closely connected to what you're doing, but everyone in the room will know what you're talking about and it's a way to kind of get things done much faster and keep everyone on the same page. And when you're in a band with people and all of your friends listen to the same music because you guys are together all the time, um, it's awesome because it's like, it just happens. It just happens over and over again. Let me just say that the idea that I have enough space in my brain to remember 6,000 different drum parts that I didn't write, but I can reference them at any time, just completely blows me away. Like music and rhythm is so powerful and it sticks in our brains like the craziest of glue. So in 1994, Spit recorded and released our first cassette. It was called Blue Collar. It was pretty cool. It was actually a lot of songs kind of talking, they're kind of angry songs, you know, talking about normal things like getting kicked out of class or how our families worked these blue collar jobs for pretty much no money. This was the first thing that I had ever recorded that had any kind of feelings or emotions behind it. There were things that our singer Dan wrote about that I think were pretty relatable to any like 15, 16, 17 year old kid kind of going through their days, trying to navigate their emotions and and feelings and just kind of figuring out as they went. I mean, I think it's pretty common and we were following kind of the same trend that Jive and Melancholy Buzz did. We recorded the tape we made shirts, eventually played a, a live radio show on WFBE. Like, it was awesome. It was, uh, it, was, it was great, and we were all doing it together. It was our friends, so it was super fun. Spit played a handful of shows in different parts around town, and we eventually started to draw kids in downtown Flint, which was kind of weird because normally it was just, like, our friends that would come and see us, and then our friends plus 10, and then our friends plus 50, and so on, it just kind of grew. It's kind of weird. When other bands would come to town, we would often get put on the bill and asked to play last, like for these out-of-town bands, so they would have kids to play in front of. This is like the courteous thing to do if you're if you're a traveling band um, and you drive three hours to play a show and everyone leaves like after the local band plays and you play for ten kids, like that sucks as a band. It's horrible. I remember one time driving like fifteen hours to Minneapolis to play for eight kids. It was awful. You don't even want to unpack your stuff. Like it's just the worst feeling in the world. This goes back to what I was saying earlier, though, about about like the, the clutch thing. And it's kind of the same thing, but on a, on a smaller scale, like, you know, people come to town and they want to play for people that they haven't played for before. They want to get exposures, new fans. So they'll bring in a band that draws people and they'll play before that band. Like it's it's common and when we would go out of town, they would do the same thing for us. So if we went and played Saginaw or Detroit or whatever, we would make sure that we played before the local band. So we got to play in front of a bunch of new fans and stuff like that. It was really, really cool. In Flint though, was weird because we were young and I feel like this kind of happened really fast. Like there's nothing cooler when you're a kid to hear a promoter say to your band, uh, you guys have to play last because everyone will leave after you play. I think hearing this when you're 16 years old is a strange thing to hear. And if you're not careful, it can definitely, definitely go to your head. I think it's around the time that you start to see bands that start to demand things like more money or larger guest lists or whatever it is and you know we were just kids like we didn't really care about that stuff we just wanted to play and we just wanted to have fun like i don't know if people stuck around because they generally liked the band or if they it was the right kind of music to get out their aggression or maybe we were just up there you know kind of being pure and being honest and playing music that we loved maybe people just gravitated toward that i really have no idea Either way, it was a, an amazing experience to kind of do it together. So, Spit also released a 7-inch through some local label in town. We eventually did a CD. And the CD was actually called Buckam Alley, which the club that we played a lot of times in Flint, the Flint Local 432, was located in Buckam Alley. So, it was kind of named after that. And that one came out in 1996. Yeah, it was a really, really great feeling to finally have a record that actually came out and people could listen to. And it kind of came together in kind of an unusual way. You know, Spit, for the most part, was a, a punk band. You know, we like bands like The Misfits and Minor Threat and and stuff like that. You know, we also loved bands like Sepultura and Slayer and Clutch, like total metal bands. All of the earlier stuff that Spit had written was this super fast punk style. That was what we knew. You know, that's what we liked. So that's what we did. And in 1994 was also the year, I think, that Punk and Drublet came out from No effects and we bought that CD and we wore that thing out like it was awesome. You know, we all loved metal and metal bands, but we didn't really want to be in a metal band because at the time metal was like this hair and leather and things that just weren't us, you know. Like we were skater kids and we just played music. We were just a bunch of kids that hung out together and and would go skateboarding and then go to band practice. Like it was it was like soccer practice for us. We would just Go and do what we wanted. So, we wrote and then actually recorded a bunch of songs with our friend Mark Hudson. We talked a little bit. About Mark, in one of the other episodes, Mark is the same dude that loaned us all the gear to record the Jive record, and he worked at the local music store, at Bogner's, and he had this recording studio that he did on the side. we Recorded stuff with him all the time, and so remember we recorded our first. I think we recorded a handful of different kind of demos with him, and eventually we went in for like a full recording session. And I mean, I think they all start out to be a full recording session, but then your band gets better, and you realize the stuff you recorded sucks, and then you have to go in and, and re-record or or record new songs, or whatever it is. So we had all these songs we went and recorded, and it actually wasn't enough for a full record. Um, it's probably six or seven tracks. I don't really remember what we were gonna do with it, but we had it in the bag, so it was it was done and ready to go if we wanted to use it for something. But everyone in the band it was weird. We were all in this like weird cusp. So everyone in the band kind of had this metal itch and eventually Eric and I started writing some kind of more metal sounding stuff. It was super fun and it was super riffy and like kind of influenced by Clutch. And these riffs that we had written were like super fun and super fun to play. And it didn't really fit in with any of the spit kind of punk stuff, um, but they were fun. So we just kept writing more of these songs. It was almost like we had a, a separate band that we had started. This was also about the time that we discovered the band Earth Crisis. So Earth Crisis is this vegan straight edge hardcore band from Syracuse that at the time were taking like the underground scene by storm. There was like this whole underground hardcore scene that we didn't really know anything about. And it all of a sudden just popped up on the radar. And they were signed to this record label out of Chicago called Victory Records. Victory had this slew of bands that were very much in the punk meets metal genre but they were doing it kind of differently. Like the stuff was heavy and angry and it had kind of heart to it. And this was a total bridge for us. Like we all of a sudden, so we found a key, right? It was amazing. How can we play more metal type stuff but not have to look like metalheads? Like this was it. This was the answer. And there were all these bands that we had never heard of before that opened us up to all kinds of other new bands. It was like this crazy wormhole of music it just opened up, and we all completely got sucked right into it. It was it was awesome. Kind of scary, but really awesome at the time. All these victory bands like Strife and Integrity and Snapcase, Hatebreed, Bloodlet um, kind of opened us up to other bands like Quicksand and Orange Nine Millimeter and By the Grace of God. Like, it was just, it just, there was hundreds of them. It was absolutely crazy. At the time all this was happening, we started playing a lot of shows out of town in places just south of Flint, and we discovered, like, Local bands that sounded like all these new bands that we just kind of stumbled upon—it uh, was happening right under our nose, and we just kind of fell into it. These bands from Detroit, like Cold Colvus Life or Earthmover or Tank—they're only about sixty miles south of where we were—but it was just happening. We just kind of just dove right into it. It was awesome. To the bands we were playing with down in Detroit, it was really cool to have us play because we were like this different young punk band from the streets of Flint. And to us, it was cool because it was like the eye of the new world of all these bands that we had just discovered. I remember the first time we played in Detroit with the band Earthmover. It was at this place called 404 Willis. And I think the place was in the Cass Corridor, kind of not too far from Wayne State. My geography of Detroit at the time was pretty awful. And I'm not going to lie, like this place was a little creepy. It was a little scary. Like we were from Flint, so there wasn't a lot of things that really scared us, but this was just a little bit different. I don't think this is probably the reality, but I don't feel like anyone was really in charge when we went to the show. It was just kind of like this building that we were playing in, almost like we're squatting. It probably is not the case, but in my head, it was different than anything I'd really ever experienced. Like there were people inside like drinking 40s and it was really dark. I remember it being wintertime and so everything was kind of just wet. And it was a cement floor and where my drums were set up right in front of the, or behind the front door rather. And, and I was playing shoeless at the time. So my feet were like ice cubes because people kept coming inside and going in and out just to smoke or whatever. This was probably the, like the fourth or fifth time that we had played out of town. I feel like every time we ventured out, it was always just something strange, just something, something different. Like once we played this backyard barbecue somewhere down near Detroit and, there were all these drunk kind of backyard moshers. They were circle pitting around this giant bonfire. And we played like a ton of minor threat songs and kids were just going nuts. Like it was, it was crazy. There's probably only 20 of them, but it was like the best time ever. I remember someone throwing something on the fire and me just kind of feeling these weird like flames on my face. Uh, you know, it's kind of like when you light a barbecue grill and or a fireplace and you're too close to it. All of a sudden you feel like your eyebrows are going to get singed off. It's kind of like that, except for I was behind the drums. I think the sitting behind the drums sometimes is like the, uh, the best seat in the house. It's also sometimes the scariest, but the time is the best. Anyhow, now that we had been exposed to all these new bands that were basically our bridge from punk to metal, we were so stoked. We started writing song after song, and they all sounded like they could have been released on this Victory-style sampler, which is basically a sample tape that Victory Records put out that had all of their bands on it. Just one song from each one. It was like this promotional single um thing that they would put out which was awesome that's how we got exposed to a lot of really cool bands everything that we had written was written with a lot of influence from earth crisis and Snapcase, and now earth mover uh it's hard not to let things influence you when you're young because you know we didn't really have a sound we just kind of had all these things this wave just kind of hit us so uh, we just kind of took it in stride and we just played what we liked and now we liked all these new hardcore bands that changed the entire game for us it was like We were now writing for a a whole new band. So, after we wrote about seven or eight songs or so, we decided to go and record them. This is what you do you write songs and you go and record them, right? So, recording is really just a timestamp. You know, it's a mark in progress. Um, Some people think of it as an epic thing, but it's to to me, it's really more of a, you know, here's where I was at the time and I'm going to record it and have a document of it and then I'm going to move on. It's just that it's that easy. So, at the time, um, Mike, who was an earth mover, had the studio in Detroit in his house and he was recording all kinds of cool bands. And we kind of struck a deal with them to go down and lay down some tracks. And it was really cool for us to go down to Detroit and then be hanging out with this band that we're heavily influenced by. It's almost like I kind of equate it to seeing like someone in a movie and then seeing someone in the movie that you really liked and thought they were really cool. And then all of a sudden you're hanging out at their house and they're helping you with your movie career or something. Uh, it's, it's, it's really kind of surreal. So eventually we released all the recorded songs that we had and on the CD the Buck of the Alley CD. And it was actually a, a mix of different sessions. We kept the ones that we recorded earlier with Mark. They sounded awesome. They were still good. And we recorded the ones with Mike. And then we actually had a couple other live tracks from different sessions that showed up at the end, like bonus tracks, kind of. And, uh, the CD was actually a joint release by Joel Rash's label called Union Made Records. And Derek Grant's label, which was called Sluggo's Old School Records. And we're pretty stoked because, I mean, Joel ran the 432 and he really helped us get to where we were, really helped us do a lot of getting shows, a lot of getting shows out of town. We didn't really know what we were doing, and he stepped up a lot and helped us out, helped us do pretty much everything that we did um, to get us where we were. So we're pretty stoked to be working with Joel and definitely stoked to be working with Derek. Derek was a drummer at the time for the Suicide Machines super cool dude, amazing drummer, and he liked our band. So it was, it was pretty awesome. The fact that anyone was taking any sort of initiative to help us in any way was, was just awesome because we were just a bunch of young kids that you know played music. So the fact that anyone took time to help us was super special and just meant so much to us. It's funny, actually. I remember the first time we played out of state and it was this sold out show at the Metro in Chicago with the Suicide Machines and Square One. I think the Broadways were on it. And the Suicide Machines had just released a record uh, on a major label. And they were on this tour. And they were just selling out shows all over the country. It was, it was awesome. It was such, such a good thing for them. I remember I borrowed my dad's big blue Chevy Suburban. And we loaded up all of our gear. And we headed to Chicago. Like It was crazy. I was 16 or 17. I had never driven out of state ever. Minus the one time I was driving to East Lansing from Flint and got on 69 East instead of 69 West and ended up in Canada. Yeah, my dad made fun of me for that forever. Um, So we're in Chicago, and I remember there being a Cubs game or something happening. So people might not know this, but Wrigley Field doesn't have a parking lot like a lot of other ballparks. So everyone's kind of either takes the train in or they just park in the street or whatever pay lots they can find. And the metro, the place we're playing, was right across from wrigley field or pretty close i don't know if it's right i don't remember if it's directly across but it's right pretty close to it and so um i remember pulling up and you know we drove up and i saw our name on the marquee i was like that's so freaking cool like our names on the marquee like how cool is that i don't think we'd ever seen our name on any sort of marquee so but i remember since there was a game there was nowhere to park so we drove like 20 blocks away and we parked and then we walked up to the venue and we we had a couple of people in tow with us it's probably you know us five plus maybe two or three others that came with us and we were early so we wanted to walk up and kind of check it out and see what the club was all about and we walked up one of the guys at the club said uh, he's like hey where'd you guys park i told him you know where we parked and he just laughed and was just like he's like oh there's a parking spot right here in front for you and it's coned off so you guys can just park right here we we're all like oh man like we just walked, so we walked 15 or 20 minutes back, um, got the Suburban, and drove it up to the club. I seriously remember playing the show like it was yesterday. It was a sold-out show at the Metro. We were on top of the world. This was like the coolest thing ever. We were like 16 or 17. I remember we played probably like six or seven of our songs. And then our singer Dan was like, does anyone like no effects? And like the place kind of went nuts. And so I remember us playing bob from no effects and people just lost it like it was the most amazing thing ever people were singing along and it was like the, the, the just definitely a pinnacle high point for that band for sure so spit went on to play a bunch of shows with some amazing bands we sold some shirts some cds some tapes some patches and as most bands do spit eventually fell apart and we all went on to play in other bands it happens it's normal uh you know we never made any money or gained any fame from The playing in the band, but we definitely learned so much during those years of playing in a band together. I think at that age, kind of everything falls apart, right? People start getting into new hobbies, and people get new girlfriends or get married, whatever it is, right? So, uh, you know, we were influenced always by the next big thing, and it's really hard to stay on course. It's really hard, you know, like clothing styles, hairstyles, and anything else. Like it's a it's fad, it's a fad related thing, and I think when you're growing up, you jump into those things and. You just kind of ride that train until the next thing kind of comes along. And when you're 15, 16, 17, that happens a lot. People don't really know who they are or what they are, what they want to be, what they want to do. I remember doing a test in high school that you have to fill out all these things for career day. And it's supposed to spit out some thing out of the computer that tells you what you're supposed to be. And when I finished filling my stuff out, they ran it through their magical machine. And it told me that I should be an acrobat. I'm not really sure what that means or how to take that. But to this day, I'm not an acrobat. So let's jump into what I learned from all this. Uh, It's a story about a band. But really what it is, it's a story about building culture. It's a story about friendship. It's a story about, you know, things that we learn. Um, You know, I learned that, that when you're 16 and you're in a band that people think is cool, it's really hard not to let that go to your head. I don't think I really let it get to me, but I'm sure at some point I probably thought I was too cool for school for a certain amount of time. You know, I think this is why you see a lot of young music stars kind of always getting into trouble and driving fast cars and being all kinds of wild. You know, it's like Jay Z said, right? You like you are celebrating the minute you're just having dough. Like that's what happens, right? You get a little little taste of it. People get excited. People let it go to their heads. Uh, it happens. We see it over and over and over again in business. We see it with people when people get promotions, we see it when people get, you know, a little bit of authority over someone else. Everyone handles it differently. I mean, we were nowhere near that level or anything like that, but it's a perception that other people have of you that can create pressure and under pressure is where people blow it. Um, I learned that, you know, most motivated people are always looking up. Always looking to create and to move forward. We are always looking to do the next bigger and better thing than the last. It's always a push, it's a grind, it's a hustle, and there isn't an end. There's never an end. I was having this discussion a few weeks ago about if I won the lottery, would I come to work next day? I think it would come to work because I love what I do, but if I didn't come to work, it would be because I started 10 new companies that day, and I'm just gonna do that now. (laughs) It's funny looking back at this stuff 25 years later. You know, Spit worked well because we were friends first and bandmates second. We built a culture between all of us that just worked. And we're still friends to this very day. We are also friends, which is amazing. So that's all I got for this one. Thank you for listening again and checking out the Hustle the Most podcast. This was episode nine. Check out more stories and photos and connect with me at hustlethemost.com. And if you're listening to this on iTunes, give us a like, give us a share, give us a review. We'll see you on the next one.